Our kids, you are dismissed for uh, kids, Calvary kids at this time. I do want to, uh, I want to say it's good to be back with you this morning. Uh, I think Eric shared with you last week that I was sick. After two and a half years, COVID finally caught me. Um, and uh, Ted Wilson, who was supposed to preach last week, also was sick. And then I came down with symptoms a couple days after that. And so I couldn't be here uh, last week, but it's good to be back with you and good to be recovered uh, fully from that. So I do want to wish you a happy Father's Day. Uh, dads, just as we did with the moms, I want to invite our dads to stand for a minute and I want to pray um, specifically for you. There are very few uh, institutions in society or roles in society that have sustained the type of continual attacks um, that fathers and the role of men in families have. And I want to encourage you this morning and thank you uh, for, for stepping, um, stepping up and being men of God and seeking to, to show the, the, um, the Heavenly Father's love uh, to your families. Um, and I want to pray for you specifically this morning. So would you join me for a moment of prayer? Heavenly Father, this morning we thank you that, that as men we are given um, the unique privilege and the high calling and awesome responsibility of being fathers. We continually come face to face with our shortcomings. We come um, face to face with the reality that we cannot begin to display your unconditional love, grace, and mercies, and faithfulness um, to our children. And yet we're called to do that. We are called to point our kids, to point our families to you. And I, this morning, I want to pray for myself and for these men who are standing among us today that we might be the men that you, you desire us to be. That by daily coming to your throne, daily surrendering ourselves, our attitudes, our ambitions, our hearts, our wills, our very lives to you, that you would continue to shape us and mold us and show through us your love. May we lead our families, may we lead our wives, may we lead our children in the way you want us to. And Lord, I pray that because of us and our abiding in Christ, that our children would grow up to love you and that our families would reflect your glory and honor. I pray today for those who are hurting, for those fathers who have lost children today and for whom this may be a painful Father's Day. I pray for those men who desire to be fathers and have not been able to for one reason or another. I pray for, for those who have lost fathers today and for whom this is a painful day. Lord, would you comfort their hearts. Father, we give you thanks for who you are and for the privilege of following and serving you, especially this morning as fathers. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, men. You may be seated. Enrique and Michelle were living the American dream. Married for just shy of 16 years, they were still very much in love with each other, and they had 11-year-old twin girls and a 14-year-old boy. What's more, they had embarked on a new and an exciting journey as a family, having accepted a calling to join the active duty Air Force, where Enrique would become a chaplain. In October of last year, he went to officer training school while his wife made plans for their family to move here to San Antonio, where this journey would begin. Just a few weeks before the new adventure started, Michelle was rucking one of the many physical activities that she enjoyed doing on a regular basis when she slipped and fell on a patch of oil on the road. 
Her injuries required attention, and so when she went to the emergency room, they discovered some abnormalities that they wanted to probe further. And within days, Michelle was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer that only just under 12 people have ever had, and only one person has ever survived. Their family's plans were turned upside down, and Michelle immediately began aggressive treatments. Sadly, a month ago yesterday, Michelle lost that battle to cancer and went home to be with her Heavenly Father at 36 years old, leaving behind her young husband and three children. Many of you have heard me mention pieces of that story over the last months and request your prayers as I walked with this family through that horrific time. This morning, the reason I share this story with you is because of the way in which I witnessed that family deal with an unthinkable trial. Michelle was always full of joy. Somehow she refused to allow this trial that could have crushed her, that in fact does crush many people, she refused to allow it to ruin her. She refused to allow it to ruin her faith. And it would not destroy her testimony. In the aftermath of Michelle's death, Enrique has been nothing shy of astonishing. His faith in the Lord has been remarkable. And perhaps even more amazing is the joy that he still exudes. If you were to meet Enrique, you'd see that he is an optimistic, upbeat person who seldom has a bad day. But there's something unique about the joy that I've seen since his wife died. It's not that he's not grieving, it's not that he's not broken, or that he doesn't wonder how he's going to make it through tomorrow. He does all of that. But there's still a joy, a joy that seems to come from somewhere deep down inside, a joy that refuses to give in to the temptations to allow this trial to ruin him. This morning, we're going to begin a new series uh, through the book of James, a book that deals head-on with trials. And the opening verses we'll read today, James' message might be summed up in this way. Life's trials test us and tempt us, and they will either refine us or ruin us. Let me say that again. Life's trials test us and tempt us, and they will either refine us or ruin us. No matter how great or small they are, the trials that you face in life test you and they tempt you. Like the fire of a forging oven, trials will cause you to become very uncomfortable and will allow the impurities of your life to come to the surface. And as they do, you'll be tempted in the midst of your trials. You'll be tempted to flee your faith. You'll be tempted to give in to pressure. You'll be tempted to cope in ways that you shouldn't cope, ways that will harm you and others. And one of two things will happen as you go through those trials. They will either refine you making you into the person God desires you to be, or they will ruin you. That's what we're going to discover this morning. And beyond that, over the course of the next several weeks, as we unpack the richness of this book, we're going to discover the need to apply theology 
to suffering. James is going to help us think through how we might persevere through our actions, through our faith in the midst of hardships. He's going to encourage us to embrace suffering and learn from it and through it. And he's going to cause us to apply good thinking and good actions in the midst of hardship in order that we might righteously persevere. Let me put it a little more simply. James wants to teach us how to live as faithful servants of Christ when things don't go the way we want them to go. Before we open our passage this morning, let me give you just a little bit of introductory material on the book of James. You know by now, if you've been around, that I'm passionate about context of the book and the audience that it's written to and why it was written. There are a few things to think about with regards to James. First of all, let's think about the author. There are a couple of differing opinions about who the author of James was. I hold to the traditional one, and that is that the letter was written by James the Just, the brother of Jesus Christ. During Jesus' lifetime, James was not a follower of Jesus. He doubted Jesus. But after his death and resurrection, James was converted and became, as we read in the book of Acts, a leader in the church. Second, it's always good to look at who the recipients of the letter that we are reading are. That way we understand something about the context. The problem with the book of James is that if it were written and it were sent today, it might be marked by the postmaster, return to sender, address unknown. See, unlike the books of Corinthians, Galatians, Thessalonians, Ephesians as examples, James is simply addressed to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, a title that could be broadly applied to many. Now, in case you didn't catch it, the 12 tribes is an allusion to the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. And what you need to understand is that Jesus has led Israel to, the, to its full intended reality of the new covenant. Israel, then, is a name for the people of Jesus now. It's the true title of the church. And when a recipient would hear this title, they couldn't help but think back to their ancestral 12 tribes and the trials and the stressors that those 12 tribes went through. They couldn't help but think back to the slavery their ancestors had endured in Egypt. They couldn't help but think back to, the, to the, um, their time in the wilderness, to the battles they fought, and to the struggles their ancestors had faced as they endeavored to worship one God in the midst of a polytheistic society that worshipped many gods. Like those ancestral tribes, the pressures that these Christians that received this letter felt were very real. Here's the third thing I want to bring to your attention. If you've been around the church for long, you may know that the book of James has seen a great deal of controversy over the years. The great Protestant reformer Martin Luther referred to the book of James as the epistle of straw. He wanted it ejected from the canon of Scripture altogether because he saw it as a contradiction to Paul's message of salvation by grace alone. Now, we're going to look more at that controversy as we go through the book together, but I am of the conviction that James is not a contradiction to Pauline literature. You see, James was writing to Christians. He wasn't writing to people describing how to become a Christian. He was writing describing how to be a Christian. He, w- he was addressing Christians on the harsh realities of life around them and how to exercise their faith, how to live it out through deeds and be faithful to their testimony to Christ. 
So once we get past those things, we understand a little bit about the book of James, we can read it within the context of all of Scripture, and its message becomes extremely applicable to us today. See, James is going to teach us how to be a faithful servant of Christ. He's going to answer questions like, how do you live as a servant of Christ when you go through trials? How do you live as a servant of Christ when you are suffering financially? How do you live as a servant of Christ when you have plenty financially and all the trappings that it involves? How do you live as a servant of Christ when you are sick, when you are afraid, when you are angry, when you pity others, when you are confused? These aren't just issues you deal with today. They are issues that the recipients of this letter wrestled with then. And so we'll find that this book is extremely relevant to us today, almost 2,000 years after it was written. With that introductory material out of the way, let's open to the first passage. We're going to be reading James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. I will read to you out of the English Standard Version of the Bible. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. I'd encourage you to turn there in your Bibles with me. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading from his holy word. Now, if, if, even if you don't understand everything the author has written in these 18 verses, you can't help but begin to, to read between the lines as you hear this passage and ascertain that there are some problems, some trials that these Christians are facing. There are some struggles, some stressors, and while we don't know for sure what they were because we can't pinpoint exactly the audience to whom this was written, we can make an educated guess. 
Keep your finger in the book of James, if you will, and flip back to the book of Acts, chapter 7 and 8. We're not going to read these these entire chapters, but if you look at Acts chapter 7, you will recall that it recounts the stoning of Stephen, the very first martyr of the Christian faith. By Acts chapter 8, verse 1, this is what we read, and Saul, who we know will later become Paul, approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and catch this, and they were all scattered, dispersed, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles." Those verses go on in the next couple of verses to detail how Saul would, would ravage the church and he would drag off men and women and put them in prison simply because they were Christians. It's hard to imagine what that was like when we live in a nation where we have the freedom to be Christians. But just try for a minute. This is a young church. It's a church that was birthed in the upper room on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came like fire and filled these apostles. And as a result of their preaching and the movement of the Holy Spirit, hundreds and then thousands of new converts were made. Christianity was spreading like wildfire across the city of Jerusalem. It was the talk of the town, if you will. People were being saved and baptized. Lives were being transformed. But then things began to turn sour. Arrests began to be made. And it became illegal to be a Christian. Can you imagine if that suddenly happened? Imagine if this afternoon your doorbell rang and Texas marshals were standing at your door with a warrant for your arrest because it had been reported that you were at church this morning. What would you do? What would you do if you began to hear that your, your brothers and sisters in the church were being dragged off and put into jail because of their faith? Would you hide? Would you deny your faith? Would you surrender and say, yes, I'm a Christian, send me to prison? Or would you run? Would you buy an airline ticket and go to a place where it wasn't illegal to be a Christian? Apparently, most of the Christians in Jerusalem did exactly that. They left Dodge. They got out of town, they fled, and they scattered, we're told in Acts chapter 8, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, what hit me as I, as I read this, the beginning of James in context with the book of Acts chapter 8, was, was this idea that they had spread to these regions, because you might remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said to his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The church thought they were escaping persecution when they dispersed and they fled Jerusalem, but in actuality, they were walking right into God's design and God's purpose, making them witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to testify this morning that there are times when we think we are being victimized, when we think we are being persecuted, and we question God, and we wonder how he could ever allow such circumstances into our lives. And in those moments, I would suggest to you that if you and I could have God's view, if we could see things from his perspective, we could see that he uses those trials and those tribulations to accomplish his will. That what someone else intends for evil, as we read in the book of Genesis with Joseph's story, God intends for good. 
That was definitely the case in this text. These believers are being dispersed by, their perse- by persecution precisely because of that persecution fulfilled Jesus' call and became his witnesses. So whoever this audience is, and, and what we know is they fled. Many fled in fear, many just to survive. They fled to places where they thought they could escape trials and persecutions. But here's what we know about life on this earth. You cannot run from trials. They will find you wherever you go. One of my favorite movies is a movie called The Village by M. Night Shyamalan. I don't know if you've seen it before. I won't spoil it for you in case you haven't. But the thing that's so powerful about this film, in my opinion, is that it tells the story of a group of people who thought they could escape suffering by building a community that was isolated and sheltered. They discovered, however, that trials and tribulations will find you wherever you end up. They will hunt you down. As long as we live on this earth, we cannot hide from suffering and from pain. And so to these who are suffering, to these who are afraid for their lives, James has a surprise salutation. He uses the word greetings. Now, to you and I, that doesn't seem like anything unusual, but if you know Greek, the word in Greek literally means joy be to you. That's right. To those who are suffering and are afraid for their lives, who are on the run, James says, joy be to you. Your trial, says James, should not be the occasion to tone down your rejoicing. Rather, they should be an opportunity to ratchet it up. His words make us scratch our heads in wonder, don't they? Or shake them in disgust. What are you talking about, James? Joy be to us in trials? Don't you know that we just had to flee from our, for our lives and leave our homes and our families and go to unfamiliar areas just to survive? Joy be to you? Where's your empathy, James? Let me wallow in my depression and anger. Let me be in this moment for just a little while. Why should I ever see this as a reason for joy? But James gets very practical. That's one of the things I love about the book of James. It's extremely practical. And, and we're going to unpack exactly what, what he teaches here and, and how he calls these disciples, this church, to be joyful in suffering. If you follow along in your outlines, you're going to see six lessons, as it were, on trials. Lesson number one is this. Trials are predictable. They're predictable. Verse 2 says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. James doesn't say, count it all joy if you meet trials. No, rather, when we meet them. The point is obvious. Trials will come our way. They are predictable. They are inevitable, inescapable, and unavoidable. And if you're not in a trial right now, chances are you've just come out of a trial or are about to enter another one. We all face them. Only when we predict them and we understand them to be a normative part of our lives can we move on and move through them and learn to deal with them. So number one, trials are predictable. Number two, trials are problematic. James refers not just to one type of trial, but to trials of various kinds. The word here means many-colored or varied. James understood that trials are not all alike. Some are job-related, some are faith-related, some are financial, some are relational, some are grief-related, and the list could go on and on and on. The point is, we are faced with trials of all shapes and all sizes. 
They come from natural causes like sickness or accidents, as well as problems caused by others. And sometimes trials are supernatural, brought by God himself to refine us and even punish us. Trials are problematic. Number three, trials are paradoxical. They are paradoxical. Count it all joy, says James, whenever you face these trials. The word means to think ahead forward. The tense indicates that James was signaling the fact that the trial was not the joy itself, but what comes after the trial was the joy. When Job said in chapter 23, verse 10, that he knows the way that I take when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold, he wasn't considering his trials as joy, but rather looking forward to the joy that would follow his trials. You see, we ought to look forward to the person we will become because of the trials we are going through. It's the product that trials produce that should result in joy. Think about Jesus himself and how he approached his suffering. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. See, Jesus looked past his suffering to the joy that he anticipated. And so must we. Here's lesson number four. Trials are purposeful. They are purposeful. And James outlines three purposes in verses three to eight. First, they produce perseverance. Look at verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The word for steadfastness comes from a preposition meaning under and a verb meaning to stand fast. So James is literally saying that the testing of our faith develops the ability for us to stand fast under such pressure. Trials are purposeful. They produce the ability to withstand pressure and stand firm in the onslaught of life. Second, trials produce perfection. They produce perfection. James says that we should let the perseverance have its full effect so that you may be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The word here means mature. We get the idea that perseverance needs to complete something in us. It's as if we are in some sort of course, as it were. We are students, and we are working toward graduation. We are being matured. We are being taught. We are growing through trials that are producing the character that God desires in us. And third, trials produce prayer. Verse 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. You see, stressful trials, in my experience, drive me to prayer. James says God gives us a supernatural ability to discern what we might call wisdom to those who ask for it. It's God's gift to us. Trials have a way of putting our focus where they should have been all along. They have a way of driving us to our knees in dependence on God. Trials are not only predictable, problematic, and paradoxical, they are purposeful. They produce perseverance, perfection, and prayer in our lives. Number five, trials are profitable. Verses 9 through 12 describe three men, a poor man, a wealthy man, and a man with pressure. Trials have a way of leveling the playing field in life. They don't care about your station in life. They don't care about your wealth or lack thereof. They don't care about your job. They don't care about where you live. 
James says of the poor man, he should boast in his exaltation. Remember, in the kingdom of God, the last will be first and the first will be last. So to those who are struggling financially and having difficulty putting a meal on the table, James says, know that your heavenly father sees you and will reward you. Rejoice in that. He goes on to speak to the wealthy man, saying he ought to exalt in his lowly position because he'll pass away like a wildflower. Now, why in the world would a wealthy man rejoice in a lowly position? Why would he celebrate the fleeting nature of his wealth? I think it's because of the way in which we become slaves to our wealth. And so to a wealthy person would look forward to the day when, no, when money no longer drives him. And to the man undergoing pressure, he says in verse 12, he should rejoice because he will receive a crown of life. No matter your station in life, persecuted, wealthy, poor, none of it truly matters. What matters is that you have an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. Trials are profitable. They'll refine you no matter the station of life you're in. Number six, trials are persuasive. This last lesson is more of a warning than a promise. James reminds us of the harsh realities that trials have a persuasive quality. They will tempt us. And what we decide to do with that persuasion, with that temptation, will either lead to our victory or to our devastation. Look at what James says about this persuasion in verses 13 to 18. First, he writes that they have an internal source and an external force. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Temptation does not come from God. Temptation comes, first of all, from within us. The internal source draws us away and causes us to live outside of the boundaries God has established for us. And what's more, temptation has an external force an external force, an actor applying pressure and endeavoring to sway us in the midst of our trials. That force is none other than Satan himself. Satan wants to entice you in the midst of your trial. The word entice means to be baited. It means to be deceived. And it carries the word picture of being hooked like a fish. Like a fish who's just swallowed a worm without realizing that there's a hook inside that worm. Trials have a way of leading us into temptation. Second, temptation says James is conceived with desire and gives birth to sin and leads to death. That's the progression that's outlined in verse 15. James says when we go through trials, we should view temptation for what it is. We should look down the road and see where it will lead us. Well, it starts as a desire, perhaps a desire to escape, to get away from your trial. When you entertain that desire and that temptation, it becomes sin, and the fruit of that sin is defeat. Defeat, defeat that ends in death. James says, be careful because trials are persuasive and they will take you down a road you don't want to go down. Third, he says, temptation is deceptive. As a kid, I remember the drive to my grandparents' house. It was 100 miles, took two hours. And I remember falling asleep about a half, half to two-thirds of the way there only to be woke up by rumble strips. You remember those rumble strips? I don't think we have any around here, but we would be going down this very long stretch of road, and that road would end at a very busy intersection where traffic was going 
well, back then it was 55 was the speed limit, but, but it was, you were entering that intersection, and so there were rumble strips. And, and I remember very clearly as a child, I'd be sleeping, and those rumble strips would wake me up. And they were intended to wake the driver up. To, to make sure that you hadn't dozed off and you didn't wander into this intersection. And, and I, I feel like James says here that, that, that temptation is, is deceptive, much like, and he gives us a warning at the end of this passage, like rumble strips to, that say fast-moving traffic ahead, wake up. This is what he says in verse 16, do not be deceived, don't be fooled. Trials will come, and they have a purpose, but with those trials, James says, every good and perfect gift comes from above. What I think James is saying is that God intends to use those trials to bring about his glory and his purposes in your lives, and we need to see those trials as opportunities to be refined. We need to embrace them as an opportunity to be made mature and complete, for every gift that comes from the Father is good and perfect. C.S. Lewis once quipped that most of us don't really want a father in heaven. Have you ever thought about that? He states that we want a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who only wants to see the young people enjoy themselves, and whose plan for the universe is that it might be truly be said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. What we want, said Lewis, is a God who wants nothing more than for us to be happy. But the trouble is, my friends, our Father in Heaven wants so much more than that. He wants you and I to be mature. He wants you and I to be remade into the image of Jesus Christ. He's more concerned about your holiness than he is your happiness. Let me say that again. He is more concerned about our holiness than our happiness. And I'm pretty sure that's one of the reasons he allows trials into our lives. I thought about whether to include this story this morning, and I finally felt led this morning to, even as I was preparing to do so. Many of you don't know um, a lot about our past, my past, and my wife's past. You know that we have some, some kids here, but you don't know how we started in 2001, we had two kids at the time, both were under the age of three, and um, our third son was born, Isaac Wesley. He was born October 3rd, 2001. At 17 days old, Isaac passed away during his sleep. We had no idea. We had some idea that something wasn't right, but the doctors couldn't find anything, and they just told us that some babies sleep a lot, some babies don't. It was before the days of being able to do the kind of testing they can now. It would later become determined that Isaac, we think, had some sort of neurological disorder that wasn't detected. But we found him. We found him during the night. That experience in our lives changed us. And I can honestly say now, he would have been 21 years old this year, that I'm a different man because of that trial. I would never want to go through that again. I would never wish that on my worst enemy. But what I do know now, as I can see 20 years later, that God used that trial and that pain to change me and mold me. I wasn't mature enough then to say that I, I had considered it pure joy. I never would have. I, I knew the book. I had read the book of James. I was a Christian. Obviously, I was a young pastor. 
but being able to look at that trial in that moment and see it as joy and see what might come from it is almost impossible for me. But I can stand here 20 years later and say that God absolutely used that trial to not only change me and our marriage and our family, but to minister to many, 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 many others as a result. Friends, this morning, I don't know what trials you're facing, but I know that in a congregation this size, there are many trials here, and they're varied. Some of you are facing financial struggles this morning, others relational. Some of you are dealing with health concerns, perhaps a diagnosis, or a diagnosis you're afraid that you're going to get. Some of you are dealing with emotional issues. Some of you are having a hard time in the workplace with your job. Others may be struggling to find a job, or you don't know whether you should stay where you're at. What I, don't, I do know is that those trials will test you, and they will tempt you. And how you respond will either refine you or ruin you. So this morning, may I encourage you to embrace that trial, to consider it joy, seeing it as an opportunity to grow. Allow it to test you. And when you face the temptations it will bring, pray for wisdom. Allow that trial to send you to your knees and understand, understand just where those temptations will take you in order that you, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, will be able to find a way to escape. And finally, may it be said of all of us that when we face trials, they refined us rather than ruining us, and that we came through the fire stronger and more like Christ. Would you pray with me?